Well, good morning. Good to see you. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. I'm glad to hear that. And uh, well, I don't. Baptism's got me this morning. I, I don't know. Uh, sometimes they do that, right? Just a little choked up thinking about it. Last night we baptized uh, uh, four as well, all the way from kids, smaller kids, up to about 65 years old. So that was pretty cool. And I think what it reminds me of is it's never too young or too old to say yes to Jesus, right? To take a step of faith and to obey him. And I'm just watching these kids here uh, today, just setting the trajectory of their life on the path of faith. That's pretty cool. So, hey, if you have your Bibles, once you turn to Habakkuk chapter 2, we've got a lot of work to do today, and so let's kind of get right to it. What we're going to see today are two fundamentally different ways of living life. You have the puffed-up way and the faith-filled way. The puffed-up way, full of self-trust, self-focus, and now perspective. And the faith-filled way, full of God-trust, others-focused, and an eternal perspective. And here's the thing, and here's why I think this conversation um, should be something you're interested in hearing today, is because one of these routes leads to a lack of peace, a lack of joy, and ultimately to a futile existence where you get to the end of life and figure out you lived your life for something that doesn't last. The other one leads to peace, joy, and eternal lasting significance. So I think that's a pretty good reason to pay attention, right? Now, if you're asking why are we studying Habakkuk, a little text that was written to Jewish people 2,700 years ago, but the reason why we're, we're looking at this book is because there are some incredible truths found in here. And in fact, this section today is quoted multiple times in the New Testament. And this ideal that we're going to see today, this contrast, is held up throughout the scriptures as the way to live a life that pleases God and leads to experiencing life the way God intends it to be experienced. The way of faith filled or the puffed up way. Habakkuk chapter 2. Now, if you remember, Habakkuk is struggling. His name means to embrace or to wrestle. So he's wrestling with God over what he sees. He sees his, the people who are supposed to be the people of God not following God. There's all sorts of corruption, violence, wickedness. So he asks God, how long are you going to put up with this? Are, you know, are you just going to let this slide? And God comes back and says, no, I'm not going to let this slide. I'm doing something amazing. It'll blow your mind. I'm raising up the Babylonians to come in. And the ancient promise I made that if you abandon me and go after idols, you'll be brought into exile. That's about ready to happen. To which Habakkuk goes, the Babylonians? Thank you. <laughs> They're way, way worse than we are. And he's struggling and he's wrestling with God. And he says, how is that just? And what we're going to get to today is the bigger picture of God's view of how that's just. So Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what Habakkuk says. I will stand my watch. He's just asked God a hard question. And now he's going to wait for the answer. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. And then the Lord replied, write down the revelation, make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. 
For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. Now last week we dove into these few, these three short little verses. And we saw some incredible truths of when you're in a situation that you don't understand, where you're confused, where you don't know what to do, where you're struggling in your faith, three things, or maybe perhaps when you're wondering where God would have you to go, three keys to look at. Here's what we talked about. Listen to God. Listen to God. Write it down and wait on God. Now here's where we're going today. Verse 4 really defines these two very fundamentally different ways of living life. Verse 4. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Two fundamentally different ways of living life. The puffed up way and the faith-filled way. The puffed up way. Trusting in self. Focusing on self. A now perspective. And the faith-filled way. Trusting in God. Focusing on others. An internal perspective. Two fundamentally different ways. And you see these terms, right? Puffed up. In Hebrew, this little expression, this word appall, and it literally means like swollen. And for you millennials, not swole, like ripped, you know. It's like the head, you know, big head, you know. A swollen ego. Arrogance is what it's talking about here. Like that pride, that self-pride that comes from trusting in oneself and viewing oneself as more than you ought to, right? Puffed up. His desires are not upright. And in Hebrew, this idea, the original word ties into the idea of your relationship, living your life in relationship to others. So that the way, the things you want and the way you live your life in relationship to others. It goes back to a statement that the Greeks made. Eat, Drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You've heard this phrase in the last uh, you know, 10, 20 years as YOLO. You only live once, right? Get everything you can now because this is all there is. So you might as well get all you can get. And, and for powerful, strong people, this works itself out. And we'll see a lot of this as we go through this chapter here. But it also, don't just think like, for, for people who don't see themselves as strong or powerful, this works itself out in, hey, I don't have, and so I will step over people to get what I want. I remember being in Zimbabwe, a very impoverished country, and uh, I, I, they like it when they see Americans, because they know Americans are trusting, but what I really think is they know Americans are dumb um, sometimes. And so I got ripped off two times in Zimbabwe, one of them, I just stepped right off the bus, and there's these guys that came and offered to exchange some money for me at a better rate than down the road. And so I thought, hmm, that sounds like a good deal. So they circle around me, and we're kind of hush-hush, you know, and I pull out like a $50 bill, thankfully not more. $50 U.S., give it to them, and they count out these $100 Zim bills right in front of me, and then roll it up, with rubber bands, hand me the wad, they're out of there. And I'm like, cool, got some Zim money now. Well, I unroll the wad, and somehow, instead of hundreds, it was ones. The exchange rate at that point was like 38 to 1, right? 
So I was like, no way. They just ripped me off. Stole, robbed me blind, right? They, they mistreated me. And the justification is, well, you're, you have and we don't have, right? So in the puffed up way, lives its life and relationship to others in a way that takes advantage of others and uses others, right? So the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not right, upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. So here you have the contrast of the puffed up way, trusting in self, focusing on self, and having a limited now perspective versus this, this faith-filled way of trusting in God, having a focus on others, and having a bigger eternal perspective. You can choose to live your life one way or the other. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on this before we move on, on the faithfulness part. Because this is the section of this verse that's quoted three times in the New Testament. This is a big deal. This is a big concept in the Scriptures. The righteous shall live by his faithfulness. Or some of your translations say faith, right? How many your translation says faith? Yeah. In fact, I looked it up, and five times it's translated faithful, and 21 times it's translated the righteous will live by faith. So, in our minds, that's a very different translation, isn't it? We think of faithful. What do we think of? Well, faithful to a spouse, right? Um, faithful in a, in a job, you know, being honest, maybe. Like somebody you can depend on. That's what we think of when we hear the word faithful in English, right? When we hear the, the word faith, what do we usually think of? Something you really strongly believe, right? And it's very different. So, you might be asking, well, which one is it? Is it faith or is it faithfulness? And like so many things when we're talking about an infinite God, which one, this or that, the answer is yes. Yes. And see, for Hebrew people, this wasn't a big issue because they understood this word can combine all these different sort of ideas within it. For us, it's a little bit harder. We're much more linear in our thinking. And so Paul comes around, and in one of the spots he quotes from this, he, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the first to last, just as it is written, and he quotes Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. Embodied in the gospel is this idea that to be right with God means living by faith, by trusting in him. Galatians 3.11, another spot, Paul quotes this. And here's what he says. He says, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by what? By faith. In other words, you can't check off boxes, you know, think if I just set up this, this checklist of things to do and, you know, I got to make it to church a couple times a month and got to throw a few bucks in the, in, in the box and sort of be a decent human being and I can check these boxes off and go, I have earned favor with God. For Jewish people, that meant, in Galatians when he writes this, that meant converting to Judaism and keeping 
the whole law, right? And he says, that doesn't actually justify you or make you right in right relationship with God. What makes you in right relationship with God is having faith and trusting in him. And that's what we preach. We preach the gospel here, right? That you got to trust Jesus for your salvation, that you put your faith in him. It's not something you can work your way to, not something you earn on your own. It's a free gift of God. Grace means unmerited favor. By grace, you have been saved through faith. You didn't do anything to earn it. It was a free gift of God, right? And so we have this concept when we hear the just shall live by faith, the righteous shall live by faith. And then you go back and you look at the original verse, and actually the Hebrew word um, for faith means fidelity or steadfastness. So the NIV translates it faithfulness. And it makes us go, well, what's going on here? Right? In fact, you hear other things like James says, faith without works is dead. You got faith? Great. Show me. That's what James says. You believe in God? You believe there's one God? Congratulations. So do the demons. James says that, right? In fact, Peter comes around Check this out. So Peter, you know, one of the closest disciples, he comes around, and here's what he says. Because Paul, sometimes, I mean, have you ever read Romans? It's some deep stuff. Some, one of these days we're going to teach it. It'll be epic. I've been waiting, because it's going to be epic. So it's got to be the right moment. One of these days we'll teach you the book. Here. But here, verse 13. Peter, in his second letter to the believers, here's what he says. And I think this is really interesting. Because he's just talking about the fact that Jesus is coming back. There will be a final judgment. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. He says this in verse 13, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, or a renewed, refined heaven and earth where sin is gone. When you look at the Greek, um, that's more the idea Verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother, brother Paul also wrote with the wisdom God gave him. In other words, the longer Jesus waits to come back, he's waited 2,000 years, right? He's waited 2,000 years. Peter says, the longer Jesus waits to come back, it's actually patience. Because if he comes back today, which he might, this is how we're called to live, any moment, he might come back, right? He could come back. But if he came back yesterday, Fred over there may not have accepted Jesus. He accepted Jesus yesterday. He's going to be in heaven with us for eternity. So it's his grace, it's his favor, right? It's his patience. That's what Peter's saying. So he says, our brother Paul wrote that. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. In other words, Peter's like, yeah, he, he's pretty, pretty brilliant and hard to understand sometimes, right? That's like Romans. It's dense. It's really dense, right? which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall 
from your secure position, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter's saying, hey, don't misunderstand, because Paul even says this. So when I'm talking about grace, I'm talking about grace, I'm talking about grace, does that mean we should just go sin more so that there's more grace? Paul says, may it never be, right? And here's the thing I want you to catch from all this when we talk about this, is faith leads to faithfulness, right? Faith-filled leads to faithful. You might want to write that down. Faith-filled points to, leads to, faithful. Do they have a slightly different meaning? Yes, but the one results in the other, right? So trusting God, let me put this another way. Those living in right relationship with God will trust him and be faithful to him. If you have a right relationship with God, you'll trust him. You'll be faithful to him, right? In other words, it says in Genesis, also quoted in the New Testament by Paul, that Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. What did he believe God on? God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Abraham said, I believe it. And it was trusting God that brought him into right relationship. What did that trust necessarily produce in Abraham's life? What did God call him to do originally? I want you to go to this other land that I'm going to show you, right? Leave your father's house, which meant leave not only your family, which was kind of a hard, really hard thing to do in that culture. They weren't mobile like we were today in the sense that you get up and you leave your parents and move across the country to take a new job. No, you stuck with your family line. And God says, I want you to do something very difficult. Leave your family line and go to the place that I'm showing you. And he obeyed. It also meant leaving behind the family gods. They believed gods were tied to the land or the territory. Abraham obeyed the God he could not see, the one true God. He left his father's house, the idols that his father worshipped, and followed the one true God into a new land, an unknown. Faith. That's faith. He believed God. And what did it cause? Faithfulness. He obeyed God. The two go hand in hand. That's the point. The two go together, right? Which is why Paul in Corinthians, he also says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. It's a little bit of a sobering verse. Examine yourselves, he says. And the point of this is if you, if you say, I'm a follower of Jesus and there's never anything in your life that's pointed towards Jesus, if there's not some movement towards following him, towards being obedient to him, towards living your life the way he's called you to be, that should make you pause and question. Am I really a follower of Jesus? It should make you pause and question. It's a sobering thought, right? All right. So faith leads to faithful. It's a big concept. And really, which one is it? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Moving on. He stops mid-sentence and drops this little nugget here, which has huge theological implications, right? And is quoted multiple times in the New Testament. And then he goes on to this in verse 5. Indeed, wine betrays him, Babylon, the enemy. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. And so here's the puffed up way. Here's how his desires, the way he treats other people. 
is going to work itself out here. The puffed up ways. Um, in, in Hebrew, this, this idea of betrays, wine betrays him, it really, the root word is like cloak, like cloak and dagger, right? And let me just, let me just illustrate this for you and you'll understand. Um, spring break. See, wine betrays. In other words, it gives a confidence that shouldn't be there for, for Babylon. So what God's saying is they have a false sense of confidence in their own strength, right? And let me just say, you probably have a friend that did something that they regret and alcohol may have been involved, right? They had a false confidence. I, I had a band a while ago. It was kind of funny because my friend was like the school district spokesman and our other buddy was a doc at St. Mary's and uh, everybody had like really busy full-time jobs, but we just started a band to, to have some fun. And before you know it, we started getting all these great paying gigs. And so we build ourselves as Grand Junction's top dance party band. You're like, pastor? <laughs> so we had a blast doing this. And one time we got this gig playing for a big bank's local Christmas party. And I still remember one of the bank executives out there um, with his tie off, dancing in a way that I'm sure ended up on Facebook or YouTube, and I'm sure he regretted the next day, right? It gave him a confidence he should not have had. Alcohol was probably involved, right? So that's the point. The point of Babylon is he has more confidence in himself than is wise. It's betrayed him, right? In fact, wine will betray him in a very specific way as God lays this down here and the prophet Daniel will record it later because in 539 BC, something amazing happens. They're having this big wine drunken party and it's actually a religious ceremony and they bring out all these idols that they've captured from all these nations and they line them up pointing towards their god Marduk. And they didn't, when they went into the temple in Jerusalem, they couldn't find a God, right? Because why? God said, don't create an image or a likeness of me because you can't. All the way back in Exodus, if you remember, right? But they brought some of the utensils, some of the like candlesticks and stuff and brought that and set that out there to worship Marduk and in the symbol of submission to this false God, Marduk. And they were partying it up. And that very evening, a hand appeared on the wall during this party. And it wrote in some mysterious dialect, the doom of Babylon. Daniel came in, this old, wise prophet, and was able to interpret it by the Spirit of God, right? And it says, you're, you're falling. And that very night, the Medes and the Persians, they, they dammed up the river upstream from Babylon, lowered the level, and they were able to crawl under where the, where the river came under the city walls. And they took the city of Babylon without a fight. King Darius of the Medes became the new king. And about a year later, the first of the Jewish exiles would return to Israel. It really betrayed them. Their confidence betrayed them. He's arrogant and greedy. There's this arrogance about him and a greed, like the grave. He's never satisfied. And this is part of living the puffed up way. For someone whose trust is in wealth and in success and in ego and in going to the next level and they've placed their trust in that, those things aren't wrong or bad, but when they've placed their trust in success 
or wealth or, you know, achieving. There's never a rest point. There's never an end point, is there? There's never a point where you get to and it's like, whew, enough. I can, I can rest now. That's the illusion of the puffed up way is if just that next thing, that next shiny object. And some of you who are very type A driven people, you, you recognize this in yourself, don't you? Because you have the tendency to never be able to rest, to never be at peace. And if you find yourself there, it's a good time to stop and ask, am I, am I leaning more into this puffed up way? What's my underlying root motivation in this, right? So they're greedy. Verse 6, will not all of them taunt him? Now, all of them is talking about the captives. Babylon took all these captives. And so he says, will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, whoa, whoa. And these next five, or these, the rest of the chapter, actually, he's going to lay out five different woes. Now, what he's writing here is very poetic in the, in the Hebrew. You don't really get the, po- the poetry, the sense of the poetry in the English. But what he's giving them are, is five different laments that the captives, that his people, the faithful people who love God, that are about ready to be hauled off into exile, maybe 15 to 20 years after this was written in 587 B.C. He's going to give them a lament that will set their framework as they go, God, where are you? Babylon just took us into exile. What's going on here? They're wicked. We're suffering. He's going to give them a lament that will bring them hope because he's going to give them a bigger picture and a, and a bigger time frame and a reference point than right here and right now. He's going to show them now over the next 70 years, I want to show you what's going to happen. And so five different woes. Here we go. Verse 6. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey because you have plundered many nations for the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. And this first woe, he looks at Babylon and he says, you think you got something for free. You think you stole it, but you didn't steal it. You just borrowed it. And it's about ready to come back to you with incredible interest You ain't going to like it. It's not going to be pretty. In fact, just a side note, this isn't part of the message, but it's a bunny trail. I went down it last night. So for those of you in the room like under 30, just listen up because older too, but um, you've probably already made the mistake. So especially if you're in your teens or early 20s, um, I learned this the hard way. Like don't do dumb debt. Like in my 20s, I tried to finance my early uh, music career, a whole CD I tried to finance on a credit card thinking, this is a great idea. It wasn't. (laughs) Took me a good share of my 30s to pay off the dumb debt I started in my 20s, okay? So just, if if that's all you remember from the talk today, well, hopefully you'll remember this other stuff because it's more important. Um, But that'll just help you. That's just free. Don't do dumb debt. Remember that. Avoid it. Trust me. If you just remember that, you'll be light years ahead. Anybody want to say amen out there? That's the voice of pain and experienced younger people, okay? All right, and trust me, you get into that college and, and they're going to be pushing those things down your throat everywhere, right? Hey, just sign up for this one, just sign up for this one. Just remember, 
your, my voice and your parents' voice in your head saying, don't do dumb debt, okay? All right, freebie, bunny trail, let's move on. There's a day of reckoning. That's the point here. Like, you're seeing how your strength right now, your wealth right now, guess what? Won't always be there, right? Verse 9, woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. You think we're so strong, we're so powerful, nothing can harm us. In fact, we built fortresses and all this. It's the arrogance, the puffed up way is full of the arrogance of self-sufficiency. That somehow you can do it on your own. And in Western Colorado, we have this rugged individual thing going. And in some ways, it's a positive, right? In some ways. But it can very easily go too far into the puffed up way of thinking way too highly of ourselves and our own strength and our own capabilities way too high, more highly than we should, right? And as he looks at the Babylonians, he says, you have this confidence in your own strength that you can protect yourself. Your confidence is wrongly placed. It's in the wrong spot. You're arrogant. And guess what? It's not going to end well. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire and that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? He said, you, you built your kingdom by harming and treading on other people, by bloodshed and injustice. And guess what? All that labor... In the God's picture, it's like fuel for the fire. This is terms of judgment. Babylon, it's coming for you. And it's like you're just piled on fuel for the ultimate day of judgment, the ultimate day of wrath. He says, the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. You want some light, cheery um, bedtime reading? Read the book of Ecclesiastes. It sets things in, in, in a proper reference point for our lives. Over and over, the smartest guy in the world that ever lived besides Jesus, Solomon, says, meaningless. It's meaningless. What he says is when you, I mean, the guy had more than any of us could even imagine having. He said, going after all the women, going after all the riches, going after power. I've done it all. I've tried it all. It's meaningless. Because in the midst of that, he says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. In other words, there's this little thing in us that knows that this life is very brief. We try to numb it. We try not to pay attention to it. Um, in the case of, I think, people that are atheists or agnostics, and if you're joining us, we're so glad you're here exploring God, church, and the Bible, and Jesus. We hope you'll meet him. But in the case of those that are struggling or, or, or deny the existence of God, I think that there's still this thing in the back of their minds, which is why it's so hard to find rest outside of Jesus. 
Because when you have this perspective of here and now, there's something in the back of your heart and mind always going, it's not worth it. But the lie is just one more, just one more, just one more nation, just one more hill, right? Just one more shiny thing. That's numbing the thing. It's kicking the can down the road. Trying to find meaning and significance in our lives aside from an eternal perspective. God says, hey, your life is like in, in the scope of eternity. This isn't, it's nothing. And if you don't take that and hold that and stare at that and live that, let it like soak into your heart, you're going to waste your life. You're going you're gonna to devote your life to a bunch of things that aren't going to last. Your life finds meaning and significance when you realize it's very short. And the reason you're here is to live your life for Him. To do what you do every day for the glory of God. To keep Him as primary and center. Verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right here in the middle of it, hope for those living the faith-filled life. See, the faith-filled life in the midst of everything they see around them, all the nations, everybody living this way, this crazy way, right? Recognizes not. In the midst of all this, as Babylon takes over, it's not going to stop God's purposes and plans. In spite of circumstances, God's plans will prevail. Nothing will stop his agenda. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, he says. Verse 15, he goes on with the woes. The puffed up way. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed the cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you. Anytime you hear the cup in the Old Testament, that that's, should be scary, right? This is the language of judgment. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. Um, they had completely wiped out. You've, you've heard of the cedars of Lebanon? They went scorched earth, completely cut down and leveled Lebanon. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. It's the shocking image. You shamed others. That was the, the real heart behind uh, the first part of that. You shamed others. You abused and took advantage of others. You destroyed the land Things that you've done will come back on you. You will be exposed. Which is so interesting how prophetically and um, like accurately that happened to Babylon in 539. As their city fell, right? Verse 18. And this one doesn't start with the woe. The woe is a little bit later. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak, 
Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to a lifeless stone. Wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. It's dead. And what you see here is the idol in the puffed up way. An idol is an extension of trusting one's own strength. He carves it, he makes it, he covers it in gold or silver, and then he bows down and worships it. It's an extension of, of worshiping one's own strength, of trusting one's own strength above God. And here's the thing. We don't think in terms of idolatry much today. We talked about this a lot when we were going through Exodus. But anytime we place something other than God in the center place of our lives and put our hope and our trust in that thing to bring fulfillment, that thing to bring happiness, that relationship to bring happiness, even good things, usually it is good things, our success, our stuff. Anytime we place something in the center place before God and place our trust in that to try to bring us fulfillment, it ends up bringing us death in life because it's something that cannot bring life. It's only when we live in proper relationship to the things in our life, even the good things, that, we put, that, that God is center that we experience the joy and the peace we're meant to experience. And then God wraps up this little statement this way. To set it all in context, this is the faith-filled way. This is what faith-filled people remember. He says, verse 12, 20, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God, is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The Lord reigns. That's the point. God is in control. God is in charge. And literally the Hebrew here says, let all the earth hush. That's how the word's pronounced. Let all the word hush before him, all the world. The faith-filled way recognizes you're God and I'm not. The faith-filled way lives like, like is stated, be still and know that I'm God. The puffed-up way never pauses to listen to God, never pauses to, to ponder and recognize the significance of who God is versus who we are. The faith-filled way recognizes God. Two fundamentally different ways of living life, the puffed-up way and the faith-filled way. And see, here's why this is so significant. Um, for, for Jews in Habakkuk's day, living the faith-filled way meant, number one, believing that what God said was actually going to happen. Even as hard to believe and unbelievable as it was, Babylon's going to come in and destroy the people of God and haul us off into exile, destroy the, the temple, basically shut down their whole religious system. God says, yeah, that's... That's what's happening. That's what's coming. The faithful way meant going, wow, okay. I'm going to live my life understanding what God has said. And then it meant as they were hauled off into exile, believing God that even though they were in a seemingly hopeless situation, that like God said, after 70 years, that was prophesied, he would come and he would bring the faithful remnant back to the land. 
it meant continuing to serve him, continuing to pray to him, continuing to trust him, even though you couldn't go do all your sacrifices in the temple. And then it meant for those faithful remnant, when King Cyrus said, hey, go back, rebuild your land. They had to leave now the comfy life back in Babylon and actually go back and take a step of faith and go back to their land, which was in total shambles, and rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple and commit their lives to worshiping and following God. And that's what the faithful remnant did. And that's who the Savior of the world came to about 400 years later. And here's what this means for us. It means trusting God enough to believe Him and take the next step of obedience. And this is how we live our lives. You want to know what it means to live a faith-filled life? It means trusting God enough to believe Him and take the next step of obedience. Let me, let me read you one more scripture from Hebrews. This is the third time this is referenced. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, so, so don't throw away your confidence. He's, he's talking to people that are struggling. It's hard following Jesus in this culture. It's hard being faithful and following Jesus. There's persecution. There's people walking away from Jesus. So don't throw away your confidence in Jesus. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Remember, his delay, when his patience, Peter says, is, it seems like a delay, but no, it's just patience. But he's coming. You can bank on it. Jesus will return. There will be a time when you stand in front of your maker. That's the truth we live on, right? Verse 38, end. But my righteous one will live by faith. In the meantime, while we wait for him, we live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, you know Hebrews 11 if you grew up in church. You know, in the original text, there's no separations, right? It just goes on. We pick it up usually at verse 1. It says the righteous person will live by faith, and then he goes on to define it. And over and over in Hebrews 11, he goes on to give us examples of what faith looks like. Faith looks like, for Noah, um, building a boat for 100 years because God said a flood is coming. And looking like an idiot for a hundred years while you built a boat because you trusted God enough to do what he said, right? Faith meant for Abraham leaving his homeland. It meant taking his son Isaac to the very altar with a knife in hand because 
God told him to, which he told him to because he wanted to reveal his heart as he stopped in the last minute and said, no, I'm not like these false idol gods that demand child sacrifice. Never would it even enter my mind. I'm a good God, and he provides him a lamb in this beautiful picture of what Jesus would do for us. Faith equals Moses' parents hiding him and rescuing him, right? Equals the people when God says, here's what I want you to do to be rescued. I want you to kill a lamb and put the blood on the top and the sides of the doorpost and walk under that, the first Passover. Trust me. And they did it. And they were rescued and saved in Egypt. Faith means for you and for me that we trust Jesus. We trust Jesus fully for our salvation. We don't trust a checklist of things we think we can do to tip our, our, the scales in our favor when it comes to God. No, we trust in Him for our salvation by faith. And when we do that, it necessarily means that we point our lives towards Him and we begin to follow Him. We be followers of Jesus. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Faith for us means trusting in Him for salvation. It also means recognizing He's Lord of everything, and everything includes you and and me, doesn't it? We say, we want to follow you, Jesus. We want to follow you. Faith for you and me. Faith means waiting on God's timing in a relationship. Some of you, you're single and you're just waiting. It means waiting instead of compromising. It means saying, I'm going to wait for God's timing. I'm going to wait for the relationship he has instead of compromising. It means being generous with your stuff even though you're not rich. Trusting, okay, God, I'm going to do this because I trust you. It means not giving up on praying for your child who's so far from God. Why? Because you trust God. Maybe God spoke something to you when, when your child was young. And, and, and he's continuing, being faithful, right? It means stepping out of the boat. I don't know what your boat is. Remember Peter stepped out of the boat? And here's what I love about Peter. As Jesus walks out and he sees Jesus walking to him on the water. And Peter, faith rises up in his heart and he goes, Jesus, if that's you, call me to come out to you. It was Peter's idea. And sometimes faith rises up in your heart and it just seems like a crazy idea, but actually it's an idea that God wants to go, wow, good idea. Because Jesus said, all right, come on out, right? And the dude walks out onto the water. And we always focus on the part, he didn't have a lot of faith. He starts sinking, but Jesus rescues him. And Jesus says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? You were doing so well there, buddy. But we forget the fact that he actually went, I want to walk out on the water to you. That's faith, right? Sometimes it means taking a bold risk that you know God's behind and trusting him. Trust God enough to believe him and take the next step of obedience. Some of you, it's going, God, I trust you, but I'm still struggling with doubt. It's what one of the guys in Scripture said to Jesus. I believe, help me with my unbelief. I trust you, but I'm still struggling. We can work with that. What's the next step that God's calling you to take? Would you stand? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for my friends. I pray your blessing on them. Lord, I ask as we look at this um, amazing 
text that you've preserved for thousands of years, Lord, that our hearts would be moved to live the way of faith, the faith-filled way, Lord. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.